Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm a planner in Kansas City, and today I'm joined by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Hey, Abby. So nice to chat with you. It's getting to be winter here, so we're uh, waiting breathlessly for snow at any moment to arrive. Really? <laughs> yeah, I see your your pretend fire behind you. So I'm glad that you are um, getting fire. into the winter spirit. Is that a real fire? Um, it is not a real fire, but it does have real heat <laughs> that comes out of it. So there is okay, heat sure. that is actually Fair. generated, which <laughs> is necessary at, right now. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't envy you. Today is kind of our first cold day. We it was actually eighty degrees uh, here yesterday, and now it's now it's forty, um, which is kind of a bummer. But I guess it is November, so it is right. to be expected. We're, we're rocking the twenties, so it'll be um, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go home after we're done, and I'm gonna have a fire. Is actually what I'm gonna do. It's gonna be so, it's gonna be epic. Lovely, yeah, that does mm-hmm. sound. It epic. is lovely. Okay. Well, enjoy that. Um, I'm glad we got our our news hour out of the way so that we can (laughs) (laughs) jump into our story today. This is Midwest Talk with Chuck (laughs) and Ham. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yes, this is just our (laughs) Midwest small talk. Midwest moment. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, So the article that we are covering today was published in Vice News by Aaron Gordon. Gordon. Uh, it's entitled, Here's How the U.S. Can Stop Wasting Billions of Dollars on Each Transit Project. So the article basically outlines the conclusions of a report published by an NYU research group led by Alan Levy. And the research spans some 15 years and demonstrates the extent to which transit projects in the U.S. are inflated compared to other countries around the world and what we can do about it. So one example that they that they use is that the cost of constructing a subway in New York is double what it costs in Tokyo around the same time and about 10 times what it costs in Paris. Um, so that's a lot. <laughs> and according to the author, the research found New York to be really the most expensive place to build transit in the on the planet, in the world. Um, and the lack of efficiency basically means we get less transit for more money and we have a lot of public sector debt. Uh, so why is this the case? Levy presents several reasons um, that combined may get to what the problem is in the United States. Uh, we've got kind of a list that's presented in this article that is, you know, really boils down to inflated costs uh, of hiring uh, employees. So that being contractors, uh, the bidding process, hiring consultants rather than having uh, some level of in-house expertise to do basic design work. The, I guess, haphazard coordination of utility companies and other things that are within the public right of way that cost a lot of money to, to figure out during these design processes. Also, the issue of over designing projects and particularly transit 
stations, they said, are driving up the cost of these transit centers. And then the, the last two things being that, you know, really local politicians drive up the cost of projects through micromanagement or slowing down the planning processes. And this one I thought was interesting, and it's that politicians and largely our society views infrastructure projects as job programs. And so we hire more workers than needed. So that's really, I guess, the crux of this problem. And it's not necessarily something that can be fixed in in one fell swoop or by what, doing one little thing. You know, essentially, the, the article says that we need to actually care about this issue in order to fix it. You know, Chuck, I think from your perspective, I, I'm interested in kind of how you've looked at this issue of transit projects in particular. I know that, you know, we talk about the infrastructure cult or, you know, the the infrastructure industrial complex and how these things are really meant to drive up costs. And do you see transit as being kind of an integral part of that, um, or at least kind of within that that overall infrastructure cult? No. Here's, I think, the important thing. I don't think transit is uniquely bad in this regard, right? I think America is uniquely bad in this regard. I feel like the important takeaway here is that you actually have people who genuinely care about transit and care about transit more than the other and I'm going to I'm going to use a word that might offend some people, but the other petty things that we get bogged down in in American politics. We're going to blame unions for the cost being high. We're going to blame incompetent politicians for the cost being high. We're going to blame greedy corporations and consultants for the cost being high. Everybody kind of involved in the political zeitgeist has their own kind of vector of evil that they can point to as the cause of this. And what you have here in this report is you have people genuinely stepping back saying, we really care about transit. We want transit to actually work. Why does it cost so much more here than in other places? This doesn't make sense. And what they've come up with is a really comprehensive list of all the major contributing factors for what this is. Here's the thing. I think we could focus on transit, and this article does focus on transit. But this is what's going on with roadways. This is what's going on with sewer and water systems. This is what's going on with every public sector infrastructure investment we're making. Yeah, and I think that was kind of what what I was trying to ask. I mean, when I was reading this article, I, I haven't worked on transit projects specifically, but you know, I'm working on a streetscape project right now, and a lot of the things that drive up the costs are, are very similar. I mean, it's not I, – I don't think that this list is exclusive to transit. I think it's like this this kind of industrial complex we have with public projects generally. Let me put some nuance on this idea of industrial complex. Because when, when you say that, I know what you mean, but I think that there are people who say that and like they hear conspiracy theory to drive up costs. and that. Here's what that term means to me. It means a system that is focused on one thing and doesn't really care at all about another thing. And the one thing we're focused on in the case of infrastructure is spending money. We are really, really focused on doing more projects, doing more stuff. And we don't really care at all. And, and people are going to, but we don't, we don't really care about the cost. It's really a very low priority for us, how much things cost. 
And so what happens is that over time, over decades, over generations of having this different focus or this different obsession, we have created and evolved systems that tend to really focus on how do we deliver big projects? How do we do big things as opposed to how do we do things cost effectively? How do we do things that financially make some sense? Abby, I have seen this over and over and over again. I mean, this is the, the, the essence of why we have strong towns as a movement, as an organization. For years, I worked on projects that financially were insane and they were obviously insane. But nobody working on the project within the system with me had as their priority making sure that these made any financial sense. The priority of everybody was getting the next project, getting the next thing done, getting the next contract, getting more asphalt on the ground, building more concrete, doing more stuff. And when, when that is your focus, you tend to over time pay lip service to whether something financially makes any sense or not. And it starts to just not make any sense. And no one can really point to exactly why, but it doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it does. And that's why I say that it's definitely not exclusive to transit projects. I think when, when there's an ability to inflate costs, that there's not really an incentive to try to keep costs down or st- try to stay true to whatever the bid was. The, the article talked a lot about kind of how the bidding process works, which I thought was kind of interesting. It, I mean, it, I don't know that I fully understand how other countries do it, but they did use an example from Italy where, you know, the the itemized costs for materials and labor are basically publicized and required. And so if you're doing a construction project, the the public sector, um, there's kind of a flipped incentive instead of, um, you know, contractors really setting those prices and then driving the prices up after the bid has been selected. Um, you know, it's, it's set at the beginning and it's very detailed and itemized, which I thought is kind of interesting. And I think what this boils down to is, you know, incentives, you know, where are the incentives coming from? Is there an incentive for these agencies to try to drive down costs, to have stronger leadership, to not have corruption? Uh, I think in the case of New York, that's that's probably a you know a big issue within these large public agencies where there's you know not really a strong assurance of accountability and you know the the article even says i don't know if you can bleed this out but you know essentially leadership needs to give a sh- i mean that's really what they say and so that's exactly uh, what they say. Right. <laughs> yeah and so it's like when the incentives are not aligned to make that happen i mean it's it's really a big structural problem, and I think that that's that when I say industrial complex, that's really what I mean. It I mean it's an industry, and it has all of these really deep rooted incentives that are driving different things to happen. And I think when you have these complexes, it can be very challenging to actually undo these knots that they're mentioning. They have this list of problems, and many of them are kind of interconnected and related to one another and can be very challenging to fix. And politicians, leadership, there's a question of if they have a real incentive 
to address these sorts of issues. I used to have in the early days of Strong Towns when I was going around doing this presentation that we called the curbside chat. I, I would give this to groups of two and three and five and like wherever some people would get together and, and let me talk, I would go and share this stuff. And I, I had this one line that I would use and it was something along the lines of, you know, we, we look at waste and fraud in this country and we think that it is the welfare family who's got the big screen TV. Like, oh, look at them on the dole and, and uh, if we could just tighten that up and, and what have you. And the reality is, is like almost every single family in this country has this massive amount of asphalt, concrete, pipe in front of their house that they make no use of, that they make just, just like squandered in massive ways um, that we're completely blind to. We're, we're not sensitive to it at all. And once you recognize it, once you visualize it, once you see it, what it is, um, you realize just how prolificately wasteful we are as a country. I know there's this rural-urban divide. I live in a small town. I'm sensitive to a lot of the complaints that rural America and small-town America has, uh, that urban America is is blind to. Um, but one thing that small-town America just does not grasp is how ridiculous our infrastructure is. You can go to any country in the world and go to their rural areas, and you're going to have small, tiny backwoods roads winding through the countryside where two people can't drive at speed going in different directions without slowing down. You're going to have dirt paths here and there. You're going to, you're going to have rural, right? You can go out to the middle of North Dakota where there's nothing out there and you're going to have wide, mostly paved roads that people can drive 70 miles an hour on that carry, you know, 150 cars a day. It is insane what we build. The, the reality is nowhere in our system are we sensitive to that insanity. And because we're not sensitive to it, it shows up in this multiple X factors of what everybody else pays for stuff. And yes, we can point at unions. Yes, we can point at politicians. Yes, we can point at consultants. Yes, we can point at greedy you know, contractors. Okay, we, we can point at all that. But the reality is, is our system is set up to solve one problem. And that problem is, how does America stay out of the Great Depression? We got out of the Great Depression, but with World War II, great. World War II ends, we bring home all these people, we shut down all these businesses, industries of war. How do we stay out of depression? Well, the way we do it is we turn our cities into machines of growth. We build homes, we build roads and streets and pipes, we build commercial buildings, we just build, 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 build. And it kept us out of depression. It gave us, uh, you know, for a brief time, a middle class. Um, it created a certain level, a base level of prosperity. But over time, the way it has manifested is that we just waste insane, amount of, insane amounts of money. And by money, I mean resources, capacity that we have as Americans that could be spent in other ways. We waste insane amounts of it uh, trying to, in a sense, keep us out of the Great Depression. And the, the ironic thing is that I think it is going to drive us into the, Great Depre the next Great Depression uh, will be a result of this lack of productivity. 
And then we will look at, you know, articles like this and we'll say, yeah, these are the things we need to fix and we'll fix them. But, but not till it's like horribly painful and we've wasted lots and lots and lots of our capacity. Well, and to your point about, you know, going to rural areas and just seeing ridiculous levels of infrastructure, you know, to the point that it's, it's completely unproductive and just the unproductive way in which we spend money generally, to me, it kind of aligns with what we were talking about last week. And that is kind of the sense of expectations, right? We are a sophisticated society. We don't live on dirt roads in any context. Uh, we need to have, you know, the best infrastructure that, you know, we can get money for. And there is a sense of people feeling that this is normal because this is the way it's been for a long time, right? I mean, this is how we've been spending money for a long time. And not only does it touch highways, bridges, roads, you know, all kinds of public works projects, but also touching transit. So I, I think it should be no surprise that this would impact transit projects as well, just because transit is not as emphasized as other types of public works projects. I think the benefit of an article like this is to show potentially, you know, if we could bring the cost of transit projects down because they're inflated, I think that that shows you the value of transit um, more than we're really recognizing it today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I think, you know, that to me, the, uh, the bridge here that we should be building intellectually is that these are people who care about transit, who are doing this study and putting things together. Um, a, a lot of times when you talk about this stuff, and I'm old enough now to remember when uh, there were politicians who actually cared about budgets, cared about things like deficits, cared about debt, and not in some superficial way, but actually like really felt like that was an important thing we needed to do for the long-term health of our country. Um, well, they say, they'll, like the article says, politicians will say that they want efficient and effective right. government. Um, but, you know, is that really a priority? <laughs> I don't know. No, no it's, it's not. I brought up an article here that we ran this week about m the Missouri Department of Transportation. I don't know if you saw that or not. Um, mm -mm. But MoDOT, MoDOT put out a tweet about it's the 50th year anniversary of the loop in Denver. Yeah, I did see that tweet. <laughs> How like cringy. Anyway, I, I, I brought out this old um, quote because a few years ago, Missouri went through this referendum on whether we were going to raise taxes and to fund transportation. And you had one of your top transportation officials, and I'll, I'll read the quote. He said, quote, it's MoDOT's job to figure out what transportation needs are and how much they cost. It's up to the legislature and the people to figure out how to pay for it. And, you know, that mindset perfectly encapsulates the, the kind of intellectually lazy, just fat and happy society that we have evolved into. And I say fat and happy, not as a way to, because we're not fat and happy, like it's, it's not working. There's a lot of deep tension throughout all of society. But what you have here is you have systems and, and their institutions. I mean, this is part of our, we're having this struggle with institutions in this country. Like, are they good? Are they bad? Do they need to be reformed? What you see an institution like MoDOT and really like every state DOT 
that has no sense of fiscal constraint. There's never a point in the process where you would say, um, we have to make a decision based on fiscal constraints. You say, here's how much it costs. And if you want it, pay for it. And if you don't want it, it will just fall apart. And that's not actually like a real decision. That is having it be a decision on whether we want to spend money or not. Not here's the money we have. What's the optimum system we create? The only way you evolve that is in a system of plenty. And that's what we had at the end of World War II. We had a system of plenty where we just gave DOTs tons of money. We just gave transit agencies tons of money. We just gave infrastructure, housing. We just gave all these things tons of money. And all those feedback loops that make it actually work, no one cared about because we weren't trying to solve that problem. The problem we have to solve today is not just how do we build things that make financial sense, but how do we make actually like productive use of this stuff we've built? And our system is just, it is tone deaf to that entire conversation. It's not even something we bother to ask or ponder or struggle with. And because that we have transit that costs 10 times what it costs in, you know, not 10 times what it costs in 10 times what it costs in other places that we would look at and say, wow, this is a very socialist, top-down, union-heavy, bloated bureaucracy delivering this thing at, you know, one-tenth the cost of what we are. What are we doing? Like, what are we doing? That, that just makes no sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the article touches on how other countries really, you know, price these things and structure projects and attributes that to the reason that uh, are, that public transit projects are a lot cheaper in other places. And it, it sounds like really, I, I, I don't think I fully understand the examples and how um, these projects are being structured, but it sounds like what they're doing is essentially flipping the incentives and, you know, upfront trying to get people to compete for lower prices rather than inflate prices upwards. And I kind of want to pose to you, I mean, you've thought about this a lot. How do you see ways we can create different kinds of feedback loops and drive prices down for these large infrastructure projects? I, I think it starts with the project selection process, right? And it actually starts even, I think, further than that, which is saying, what are our constraints? When you work in a world where money is not a constraint that you care about, your costs will go crazy. And if you just took the idea of the Department of Transportation in every state and said, instead of you coming up with a list of projects you want to do and then giving us a cost, why don't you come up with uh, here's the amount of money you have. What's the maximum that you, you know, what, what's the best transportation system you can provide with this much money? And just that exercise, that exercise of like <laughs> starting with a different constraint changes the way you think about everything throughout the system. I've often said that DOTs should publish basically a list of here's how many highway miles we have, and here's the annualized cost of sustaining them. It's not a hard number to come up with. 
right? I mean, we, we can take these costs that recur at regular intervals. We know what they are. We know the cost of asphalt and bituminous pavement. We know the cost of concrete. We can project out in reasonable sense. We know that it's going to last 20 to 25 years. We can look at our inventory today and say, here is our cost and here is what this would be in an annualized sense. So here's what our budget needs to be just to maintain what we have. If we did that, we would find is that we have a, a, about 25% of what we need to maintain the stuff we've already built. And so at that point, to me, we're asking questions that have ridiculous answers. And they have ridiculous answers, not because we can't figure it out, but because we don't care to ask the question. The end of this article had, had this quote that I think is great. And it, it says this, Crucially, the report, this report we're discussing, the central finding speaks to the issues not just with transit in the U.S., but with all kinds of institutions. We need better political and institutional leadership, which actually cares about costs, about treating this metastasizing cancer on American society that is hobbling our ability to build anything decent. Yeah, I caught that quote too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like... You know, people are like, Chuck, why are you against? Uh, I just wrote this thing about this, this street project in Salem, Oregon. And the pushback that I've gotten from people is, Chuck, why are you against bike lanes? Why are you against people being able to get to the VA? And I'm like, look, I, I'm not against bike lanes. I'm not against people being able to get to the VA. Like I get why that's necessary. But you're telling me that a $30 million project that has an infinite payback window, like literally the payback window is infinity. It never, ever pays for itself. Is somehow making you better off because it has bike lanes and it's next to the VA. Doesn't make any sense to me. We have to be able to solve those problems within these constraints. And I, I think I've used this quote on this show before, but it's it goes back to the British physicist Ernest Rutherford, who said in World War II, and I'm sorry he was with a bunch of men, uh, he said, gentlemen, we've run out of money. It's time to start thinking. And there's something like yeah. fiscal reaction in that, <laughs> that people recoil against, right? Like, oh, just starve the beast. There's nothing about me or strong towns or this report that is starve the beast and that will fix the problem, right? You starve the government and it actually just screws up. We need a different set of priorities, a different set of starting points, a different set of, of, of objectives when we set out to do things. And we need better political leadership, which actually cares about costs. We do not have that today anywhere in government, even in the most Tea Party fiscal hawk, we have nothing like that. But Chuck, how can we expect politicians to lead a cause in caring about fiscal <laughs> sustainability? I, I mean, it seems like that needs to be something that people care about and then politicians will respond. I mean, or, or politicians need to find a way to make people care about it. I mean, it's... I, I feel like politicians a lot of the times just kind of I don't want to say that they don't have their own perspective and their own things that they stand for. But but if their constituency doesn't care about a particular issue, like, I don't know, being responsible with money, if that's not like a big issue for people, it may not be something that they focus on. And I feel like that's part of the problem. Abby, I have been at small township meetings where 
everybody on the town board is like, I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm a budget hawk. I'm for keeping taxes low. I'm for responsible government. That is the whole reason that I'm here. This is what I'm all about. And I will walk them through while they are planning to take on a bonds, issue bonds, so borrow money to maintain roads. And I walk them through and show them the very simple math, basic math that demonstrates that all they are doing is borrowing from future generations to live a happier, a better lifestyle today of wider roads and what have you. And that eventually they're going to run out of money completely and all this stuff is going to fall apart. And they will look at it. And I even had one say, this is damning. It's irrefutable. I get what you're saying, but this is what the people want. And I'm here to vote for what <laughs> Yeah. So, so shred it, get rid of it. <laughs> well, so, yeah. so, you know, so we're going to borrow the money and, and go, you know. That's a real problem. If, if broader society doesn't care about inflated costs and spending too much money, how can we expect the politicians to be principled about that? I mean, truly. I think there's two intersecting problems here. Abby, I feel like one of them is the bread and circuses problem, right? Like this crap is our bread and circuses of our time. You know, it, Rome could never get rid of bread and circuses or they needed bread and circuses because that, that like was like a distraction from everything else. The other problem that you have is that our political, our top down political factions today benefit deeply from one part of this narrative, right? Um, Unions are driving up costs. Bureaucrats are driving up costs. Incompetent government is driving up costs. That is all true. And, and this report kind of demonstrates that that's all true. Well, that fits really well with one political perspective. There's another political perspective that says, you know, corporations are greedy. Their consultants are taking advantage of the system. Uh, no one is really responsive to the needs. Like all of those things are also true. And that fits a narrative over here. You know, we're having this conversation about inflation today and what is inflation? Well, it's, it's greedy. It's greedy corporations making more profit off of you. These are political narratives that uh, in a sense, top down, benefit the players in the system, even though they are incomplete at best. This is the whole project of Strong Towns, is to try to help people recognize that we need to care about this and we need to care about it from the bottom up. And the reality is, is from the bottom up, we actually can care about this. We can actually do something about this very problem. And the warning that's always sitting back there is you, we ignore this at our own peril. I mean, ultimately, I realize, you know, there's this kind of mindset in this country today that, well, you know, if inflation's a, a construct, we'll just print the money. Um, deficits aren't really real. None of this Nothing's fiscal stuff real. Matters. Yeah. <laughs> we owe the money to ourselves. So, like, what does it matter? All of these things are attempts to, like, explain away why constraints don't matter. And I always get back to the idea that, Okay, fine. But all of this stuff that you say are artificial constraints that don't matter are representations of people's labor, people's time, people's energy. Uh, they're representations of actual raw materials that we have to utilize to do these things. And those things are all finite, not infinite. And when you waste those and squander those, you are wasting and squandering not only our present, but our future. And that is the, the urgency to get this right.
that I do think can, if it moves from the bottom up, can actually affect as the top starts to crumble, which is what we see. I mean, I through a strong downs lens, I see the top down stuff breaking down in a huge way and not working. We can either have, you know, our politicians exploit that and turn us against each other, or we can work from the bottom up to fix it and demand that these systems be reformed. I feel like those are the answers in front of us. Yeah. It, well, and it, you know, we've definitely learned to live in a society where largely we do not accept constraints. Uh, you know, it's, and I, I want to say that's like a boomer mindset, but I feel like it's also, a, it's like a peak millennial mindset and it makes you wonder, are we going Chuck, to have like more of a, claims? like a generational shift? Yeah. It's like, we just, we, we really don't like constraint. Um, and unless we're forced to deal with constraint, it, I feel like it's, it's one of those things where we're going to have to hit some point of tension before people really care about it. People who are not within this strong towns conversation. Yes, I agree. How can you look at a project in Salem, Oregon, if you're a resident of Salem, where the tax revenue you will get in the most optimistic scenario is 250000 a year. And the debt on the bond on your share of the project, now the, the, the federal government's paying half, you're paying, the debt on your share is 600000 a year. So you're bringing in 250000 just the interest on the debt, just the interest, not principal, not paying down the debt, not future maintenance costs, is 600000 So you never, ever, ever break even on this project. Yeah, you're just upside down. How can you look at that math and your response is, well, why are you against bike lanes? I'll say this in like a, you stupid fool. Like, why are you so insensitive to the fact that this doesn't work at all? And the reality is we're just, we're just, we just don't care. Like we're, there's a big part of our population that is not sensitive to that and doesn't care, even though it is wrecking our ability to do things that we need to do. And like, yeah, like because, my, because we want it and we want it now and this is what we want. We don't want a different alternative. And like you said, I mean, you need that pressure to start thinking critically about things rather than just kind of saying that, you know, you see, you see it, you want it and you don't want another alternative. Right. It's, I mean, I think that's a great quote because it's very, very true. And did you say that that was a $30 million project to connect to a VA? It's like, you may as well just build a new one. Yeah. No. Well, the, the sad thing is, is they had just in the last few years moved the VA from, you know, somewhere else where it was actually decently located out to the edge of the, you know, this industrial park where they could ostensibly get some cheap land to build it. I mean, the, the, this yeah, is so the how stuff much where, that cost on top of whatever project right, you're talking about. Yeah. With weirded out constraints, you ask the wrong question and you get stupid answers like this. Yeah. Imagine what that money could have gone towards. Um, yeah. It, it's, it, it's frustrating because our system overcomes stupidity with money. I mean, really, when, when we use the term orderly but dumb to describe top-down systems, we're talking about systems that have historically tried to overcome stupidity with just money. And, you know, when, when money is not a constraint, you can build the bridge. I mean, you can build the bridge in the wrong place, realize it five years later, and then build a bridge in another place. Because like, what, what does it matter? Money is not a constraint. And money and everything that it represents. 
We are like the ultimate trust fund baby society. <laughs> we are the ultimate trust fund baby. That's what we are. And and you can, I, I'm with you on loathing, you know, the boomer mindset because this is the boomer mindset personified, right? And I'm a Gen Xer, so I get to loathe boomers. Right? I, I get that. Um, there's something unfair about that. I understand. But, but it is the boomer mindset of just think big, make no little plans, go out and build, you know, transform everything, just throw money at it. And money as a proxy for thinking is ultimately really destructive. I'm not going to completely let the boomers off the hook because I think that this is definitely the boomer system, but I think millennials have adopted it and just don't realize it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that it's mirrored in many ways within my generation as well. I think, you know, millennials, if we look at the good and the bad, I, I think if we start with the negative, they've, they've adopted the entitled part of that mentality. But, you know, Xers have to a large degree too. So I'm, I'm throwing stones from a glass house. They've largely adopted the entitled part of that. My, my sense is that as they get into positions of leadership, uh, and positions of decision making, they grasp the constraints way more than boomers ever did, because they have to actually live with more constraints than the boomers have. You, you can be a dumb boomer, put your put a tiny bit of your money and savings, and you're rich today. Um, you can't do that as a millennial. You, you're starting off like you know, not just not on third base. You, you're starting off on the bench in the dugout you know, behind three people who are playing in front of you. The millennial thing comes with this air of entitlement that makes no sense to me, but it also comes <laughs> with a, a lot of- A lot of you constraints. Know, a lot, ton of constraints that I think they are smart enough to figure out um, and they're going to be forced to. Yeah, yeah, very true. Very true. Very, very different kind of mindset, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I think most of us just don't look at our 401ks anymore because we can't just put $5 in a savings account and be be rich uh, when we retire. So um, kind of a bummer. <laughs> well, you, you see those, you know, when you get, when you enter into the investing world, there's always this thing that they do where they say, if you put $10,000 into this thing in 19, whatever, it would be worth this today. Yeah. And in 2022, if you invest $10,000 here at this percent return over this many years, it'll be this. And it's supposed to get you to invest. But the reality is, is that if you were a boomer and you put $10,000 aside in 1960, it's worth an insane amount of money. And if you did that in 2000 or 2010, it, you are not getting anywhere near the returns in the first decade or two that the boomers did. It's not even close. It, it's a completely different system in a completely different era. Well, no, it, it makes a lot of sense that there is a sense of not having constraint and setting up society around the idea of not having constraints. And I think that, you know, moving forward, research like this in the article is really important because it's it's kind of showing us this process of recognizing our constraints and needing to kind of pull back and and, you know, start to recognize these tensions that exist that are being largely ignored now because of just the way things that had been, again, industrial complexes, right? It's like these are systems that have been set up during times where we aren't forced to recognize constraints and we are spending money and making things big and doing big projects. 
and we're kind of in a different era now. We need to start thinking more incrementally. We need to start thinking about, you know, how to drive down costs and not doing everything, you know, not thinking in terms of just giant boondoggle projects every time we're doing something. I feel like the, the, to me, this is what I started with. And I feel like this is the really important takeaway for people listening to this. This is not some taxpayer rights, government waste kind of league putting this out. This is not some right wing, we hate government kind of thing. These are people who really like transit, who are saying our systems are wasting ridiculous amounts of money and we need to do better. And I, I think if we can, if, if we can get to the point where we say, having transit is really important and we can deliver it well, but we have to fix the systems. We have to become more sensitive to cost. We can actually find that this crazy, insane political conversation we have melts away and we can actually focus on solving problems within constraints and do some beautiful things. Yeah. And, you know, in the case that that they're sharing, it could be double the transit for the same amount of money or more than double the transit. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So yeah, I think that's a good point. This is a group that loves transit and this is a fascinating article. So I'm glad that we covered it this week. Um, So let's leave it there. Uh, But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone. We're actually doing a special down zone this week. So Chuck, I am going to pass it to you. This is member week at strong towns. Uh, this is the one of two weeks out of the year that we pause and reflect on not only the thousands of people that make up the Strong Towns movement in terms of, of, of membership, but, but really the hundreds of thousands, the millions of people who read and interact with Strong Towns on a yearly basis. I don't know if you know this, Abby, but the UpZone podcast is our fastest growing podcast in terms of listenership. Uh, awesome. We have, you know. Oh yeah, no downloads are are going through the roof. It's fantastic. Uh, we don't talk about membership on this podcast very often, but we 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 should and we will today. Um, Strong Towns is a five hundred one c three. We are a nonprofit organization. Forty percent of our budget comes from people who give us uh, five dollars a month uh, on average is what it is. Fifty or sixty dollars a year is our average donation, but we have people who give us one dollar a year. Uh, just to be members, just to support what we're doing. Um, when we talk about membership at Strong Towns, it's not a patron kind of model. You know, I know like people have sub stacks and you subscribe to help them out and support them. We're not setting out the tin cup and saying, hey, if you like what we do, give us five bucks. Um, we're saying that this movement is about changing the way we build cities. It's about changing the way we make public investments. It's about changing the conversation uh, just like we're talking about today. How do we bring uh, broad coalitions of people together to from the bottom up reform these systems? And if you want to see that happen, if you want to see that uh, reality uh, take place, um, then go and support Strong Towns. Go to strongtowns.org, which is our website. Click on become a member. Uh, sign up to give a donation in any amount and, and just say to us and, and to the thousands of other people who have, have signed up to become members, I'm, I'm with you. I want to see this happen. I want to see this transformation take place. I'm here. I'm among you. And I want to make it happen. And if you do, we're going to invite you to a, an onboarding process. Uh, we're going to give you special insider stuff. We're going to keep you in the loop. Uh, you're going to be part of our movement to change the direction of this country. And it's a really exciting time because we've seen tremendous growth in 
not only our membership, but in the uptake of our ideas. And we are on the cusp of doing some really huge, amazing things. So now is the time. Strongtowns.org, click on become a member. Abby, I'm, you know, always grateful to have you, you know, leading this podcast, leading this conversation and being part of our movement. And I'm just grateful, you know, that you're here doing what you do. So thank you. And thank you to all of our members as well. Thanks, Chuck. Having a lot of fun doing it. We are having fun, right? Yeah, we always have fun. I think we do. (laughs) I'm happy that people listen. (laughs) People are listening and we're getting a lot of feedback. And they will say that they really like you, Abby. Not so much me, but they think you're great. (laughs) Yeah, that's my favorite review we've ever gotten. (laughs) (laughs) It is. We we have gotten that review a number of times. If you really like... like, When you sign up to become a member, there's actually a place where you can leave a comment and the comment goes into a a Slack channel that we have. And we see these all the time where people will say, "Um, I'm I'm joining Strong Towns. I love Upzoned. I love Abby. In parentheses, Chuck, not so much. That's cool. You can do that. (laughs) We We will get that feedback when you sign up. I see all of those messages and I only cry every now and then. Oh, that's very, very sad. Well, for anyone who's listening, be nice to Chuck. No, you don't have to be nice to me. Can I, can I give you an inside thing? Yeah, um, for sure. You are a part of our Slack. I don't know if you see the the uh, the channel where our donations come in. Um, so we use a, a software. So. Okay, I can get you access. It's it's really fun because people yeah, leave comments. They leave comments with their donation and we see them and it's a lot of them are very beautiful. You know, like here's my story. Oh, I yeah. found strong now. No, they're 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 beautiful. They they really are inspiring. Yeah, I'd um, love to see that. But the well the program we use to handle donations, because we don't handle credit cards that's handled by a third party. I don't want to have like people's credit card information. So there's a third party website that processes all this and keeps that all on file. And they've got all the security and all that stuff that, that, that organization is called fundraise up. It is a nonprofit raising platform. So it's just a plugin on our site. If you go to strongtowns.org, click on membership, you'll see fundraise up plugin. That's where you sign up. Anyway, fundraise up our inside uh, insider way of using that is to say fu. It's the fu it's plugin. The- <laughs> fu. Yeah. So we have a we have a channel that is called fu comments, and it's always funny because whenever anyone new starts at Strong Towns, they get invited to like all of our staff Slack channels, and yeah. one of them is fu comments, and they assume that it's going to be it's like angry you know, people. Yeah, yeah, and it winds up to be these beautiful. Uh, member testimonials and and words of encouragement and all that for people when they they sign up to become a member. It's the Minnesota Engineering Board, and that's where they (laughs) contact you through. (laughs) No, so we have a Slack channel called FU Comments, and if you when you sign up to become a member, if you leave a comment, it will show up in our FU Comments board. And I'll read it. Me to that. I'd love to read it. And um, I also want access to your Audible account so that I can listen to books. That's the plan. It's all the, that's the plan. If you do that, I'll send you a hoodie. How about that? Ooh, I want one of those hoodies. I've got my not just bikes hoodie on today. And you I have love your multi. That. 
Yeah, we just got new hoodies uh, and little mugs, so I'm pretty excited about it. All right, we've got our member drive hoodie hoodie episode. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta do the hoods. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thank you. Bye bye. Get down tonight.